0: Hello, and welcome back to the Rambling Star Wars Fan. I'm Ken, your host, and this show's resident rambler. On October 30th, 2012, Bob Iger, the chief executive officer of the Walt Disney Company, announced the purchase of Lucasfilm Limited, and many Star Wars fans have been in a tizzy ever since. Some people have loved the content that has been made during the Disney era, while others have been quite vocal about their displeasure with the newest additions to the franchise. Do you know that Star Wars and Disney were connected long before that date of purchase in 2012? Well, if you're ready to hear about some of those connections between Lucasfilm and Disney, grab a Mickey Mouse Rice Krispie Treat, a glass of Jabba Juice from Oga's Cantina, and get ready for today's show. Hello. I'm so glad that you joined me today for the second episode of The Rambling Star Wars Fan. And as you can tell from today's opening, I'm going to be spending time talking about some of the many connections that exist between Star Wars and the Walt Disney Company. You see, when I first sat down to outline this episode, I made a timeline that stretched from 2012, the date of the purchase by the Walt Disney Company of Lucasfilm, all the way back to 1955, the year that Disneyland opened in California. And it proved to be too challenging to talk through all of those things year by year by year. So instead of doing that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hop around across time and space while I talk about the different connections between those two companies. I'm not going to go into a ton of detail about the connections, because some of them I actually plan to use as topics for longer and more focused episodes in the future. Some of the connections that I'm going to discuss can be seen through the individual contributions of Disney and or Lucasfilm to a shared property, while other connections will be made up of direct dealings with each other. I apologize if that doesn't make a whole lot of sense right now. I guess mild confusion is just one side effect of listening to me ramble on and on, and I'm going to do my best to make things a little bit clearer as we go. And so with that said, let's start off by taking some time to talk about the links between Disney and Lucasfilm, specifically as they relate. To the marvel cinematic universe in 2009 the walt disney company announced a deal to acquire marvel entertainment and lucasfilm and industrial light and magic are no strangers to the earth's mightiest heroes in fact industrial light and magic was involved in bringing ang lee's hulk to the screen as well as john favreau's iron man and many of you current star wars fans are very familiar with john favreau and his work around The Mandalorian, The Book of Boba Fett, and even some of his voice acting work in Star Wars Rebels. And Lucasfilm was connected to the Marvel Universe even before the purchase by Disney. George Lucas was deeply involved in one of the most, from my perspective, one of the most underrated, underappreciated Marvel movies called Howard the Duck. Now, before you get too feisty and, and say that Howard the Duck was no masterpiece, believe me, I, I understand that opinion. However, we can't discount some of those strong connections. So the director of, of this movie was Willard Hike, and his wife, Gloria Katz, not only did they work on, on this movie with George. They also worked on American graffiti, more American graffiti, and they were involved in the screenplay for both Indiana Jones and the Temple of Dune and Radio Land Murders. So they had a strong connection to George Lucas and did a lot of work with him from their, their days in college together. And then they worked on Howard the Duck. Star Wars itself also had a strong connection to Marvel in that since 19, from 1977 to to 1987, Marvel is the comic book publisher who ran the Star Wars comic. The focus of the next set of connections that I'll talk about will definitely become a topic of several future shows for a couple of reasons. First of all, they stretch back to George Lucas's early days at USC. One of George's college classes in 1965 was an animations class, and he created a 60-second animation called Look at Life. George won several film awards with that very short film. I also think that the connections that I'm going to talk about next display some of George's efforts to advance various technologies and techniques in order to use in telling visual stories. The connection points that I'm talking about refer to Pixar animation. You see, the seeds of Pixar were planted in the early 1970s at the New York Institute of Technology by Ed Kampmull and Alvy Smith, and they joined Lucas's computer division with the goals from George to create a digital film editing system, a digital sound editing system, a laser film printer, and he also, George also wanted them to work on improving the overall quality of computer graphics. And along the way, Ed, Alvy, and other team members of their teams created such memorable things as Star Trek's Genesis Effect that was in the Wrath of Khan movie, the Stained Glass Man and young Sherlock Holmes, the adventures of Andre and Wally B, and they even created the Pixar image computer. Interestingly enough, in 1986, George Lucas sold Pixar for about $5 million to Steve Jobs, and in 2006, Steve Jobs sold Pixar to the Walt Disney Company. And inside the story of Pixar are many other interesting chapters that involve such people as Michael Eisner, John Lasseter, and Bob Iger. I mean, for instance, John Lasseter started working at the Walt Disney Animation Studios in 1975, sorry, in 1979. He was fired by them in 1983 and was hired by Pixar in 1984. And while he was at Pixar, he worked on Toy Story, A Bug's Life, Cars, and Monsters, Inc., after Bob Iger replaced uh, Michael Eisner as CEO of Walt Disney Company and purchased Pixar from Steve Jobs, Lasseter was actually promoted to the head of Disney Animation at, with, along with Ed Catmull. And nestled within that story of Pixar are also chapters of rebellion, wild creativity, the creation of new movie making techniques, and bunches and bunches of personal drama. And all of these things are things that George Lucas had a great deal of personal experience with. So now let's channel our inner Luxo the desk lamp and hop from the Disney Star Wars connections with Pixar to some of the connections between Star Wars and the Muppets. (laughs) Now don't worry, I'm not going to be singing about the rainbow connection and I'll move right along as we talk about Kermit's maker Jim Henson, his team and several of their creations. Now, The Mubba Show was filmed in England from 1976 to 1981, and it was produced and recorded at L Street Studios. That's the same studio where parts of the Star Wars movies were made. In the late 1970s, George wanted to create new characters and creatures for The Empire Strikes Back, including none other than that Jedi Master who was over 800 years old and was found living on a swamp planet. Yeah, I'm talking about Yoda. Yoda was created by Stuart Freeborn and Nick Mallet, puppeted and voiced by Frank Oz. Yes, that Frank Oz, the one who brought Miss Piggy, Bert, Grover, Fozzie Bear, the Cookie Monster, and other Muppets to life. Frank Oz was actually selected as the puppeteer for Yoda because Jim Henson was too busy with other projects. And George, when George asked him about, about helping him out on On the Empire Strikes Back he recommended Jim Henson recommended Frank Oz and actually speaking of Jim Henson I believe that he and George uh, were, were cut from very similar cloths they were both highly skilled storytellers incredibly creative they dabbled on the rebellious side and they often sought new ways of telling stories to children in fact Jim and George worked on several projects beyond Star Wars they worked on the Labyrinth and the Dark Crystal together and some of the Muppet makers like Stuart Freeborn and Nick Malley, helped create several of the creatures for The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. And even beyond those those folks, one of the makers on The Return of the Jedi went on to work with Jim Henson, the Jim Henson Company. Kirk Thatcher was 19 when he worked on that third installment of the original trilogy, and he went on to to direct many Muppet movies, and most recently he starred in Marvel's Werewolf by Night, which is a, a short movie that's on Disney+. And one of my favorite connections between Star Wars and Disney was through the Muppets, and in fact it was almost a, a, a bit like seeing into the future. In episode 417 of The Muppet Show, Mark Hamill starred as himself and Luke Skywalker at the same time, and during that episode he and a bunch of the other cast sang When You Wish Upon a Star while a very familiar castle rose up from the stage. That episode, which aired on February 21st in 1980 in the United States, foreshadowed the eventual purchase of the Jim Henson Company by Disney in 2004. And I'll give you bonus points if you can tell me who the CEO of Disney was at that time. And the Muppets are still very connected to, to Walt Disney beyond the, the, the purchase. There's an attraction at the Hollywood Studios in Florida. And I've got to say, um, every time we go to that park, we, we go to that particular attraction and just absolutely love love taking it in. The Muppets are our uh, fan favorites in, in, in our house. And speaking of Hollywood Studios... Um, Let's whip over to that other source of connections between Star Wars and Disney. And no, I'm not talking about Black Spire Outpost. I'm talking about Indiana Jones. See, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg worked on the Indiana Jones movies together. Indiana was the name of George's dog when he was a kid. In fact, it was the same dog who was his inspiration for the Wookiees, specifically Chewbacca, because his dog would often ride around in the, the passenger seat of his cars while he drove around town. Howard Kasangian, the vice president of Lucasfilm from 1977 to 1984, and Frank Marshall, who just so happens to be Kathleen's Kenne- Kathleen Kennedy's husband, were also deeply involved in bringing the Indiana Jones movies to life. Later on, from 1992 and 1993, there was a television show called The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles that was shown on ABC in I'm not sure if all of you are familiar with this, but the Walt Disney Company ultimately purchased ABC in 1995. There are also several Disney attractions based on Indiana Jones, including a ride at Disneyland and a live stunt spectacular in Florida's Hollywood Studios. There was also a connection between George Lucas and the Walt Disney Company in in relation to another attraction, another park attraction, and that was called Star Wars. You see, in the in the in the 80s, George was actually offered up a position to lead the Walt Disney Company. He turned it down, and ultimately, eventually, Michael Eisner, the gentleman who was who was named president and CEO of the Walt Disney Company, asked George if he'd be willing to help out bringing an attraction to the parks. Originally, they were going to do a a ride based on Disney's movie The Black Hole, but they decided to go a different path, a different route. And under George's leadership, or with George, they ended up selecting some military-grade flight simulators to base this ride on that became the, 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 the very famous Star Tours. And it premiered in Disneyland around the tenth anniversary of Star Wars. And each flight simulator cost about five hundred thousand dollars. And the final project, or final cost of that project, the the Star Tours project, back in the eighties, was roughly thirty-two million dollars. And the the Walt Disney Company was so invested in this this project that on opening the, the when the the attraction opened, the park stayed open for sixty hours straight. To give fans uh, the opportunity to to ride the ride, and the pilot from the original Star from the original Star Tours ride, an RX Droid, which was recently featured in one of uh, my Facebook posts, my Facebook pictures, um, that RX Droid was given a new job in Batuu as a disc jockey. So when they revamped the ride later on, and replaced the pilot with C-3PO, that same droid was was moved over to Oga's Cantina and now spins tunes for everyone to listen to while they're eating snacks and, and, and drinking some, some cool beverages. How many of you remember the Disney attraction called Captain EO that featured Michael Jackson as the, the, the star performer? Well, that project, that film and 4D uh, attraction, involved Francis Ford Coppola as a director, George Lucas as one of the writers, along with Rusty Lemerand, and they helped create this whole, whole 3D-4D attraction. George Lucas was was involved in editing much of the film, and he was responsible. This is going to sound really silly, and I can't believe I'm going to put these words together like this, but he was responsible for removing a lot of Michael Jackson's pelvic thrusts because the the company at the time, the Disney company at the time, thought it was a little too racy for, for the, the theme park. Along with Michael Jackson in this this Captain EO production was Angelica Houston, she played the supreme leader, and Debbie Lee Carrington, who's a little person who played several Ewoks and a duck in Howard the Duck. In, the, in Captain EO, uh, Debbie Lee was one of the geeks in that attraction. The attraction itself cost about $30 million to make, and at the time, the film for that attraction was billed as the most expensive film ever made, costing roughly $1.76 million per minute. And two two songs from that attraction, Another Part of Me and We Are Here to Change the World, were actually released on two different Michael Jackson albums. And this, this attraction ran from 1986 to 1998, and then off and on again uh, until 2015. And the connections with Disney and Star Wars go beyond the parks. They go beyond the other, the other companies that Walt Disney ended up buying, and it could go all the way back to the original trilogy some of the earliest star wars merchandise were actually read-along books and i had mentioned those read-along books during my my introductory episode for all of you there were these wonderful brief books that came with a a record and the record read read the story along and at certain places throughout the story you would hear a a set of noises encouraging you to flip the page from one to the next and the first three movies star wars the empire strikes back return of the jedi we're all subject of these read-along books, along with some extra stories. The, the the first little bit of the the expanded universe, if you will. They had The Further Adventures of a Droid, or sorry, The Further Adventures, Droid World. That's also featured in that that recent Facebook post that I put up there for all of you to see. The Further Adventures, Planet of the Hoojibs. And uh, as, a, as a funny little Easter egg, one of the Hoojibs showed up in the, the Book of Boba Fett. There was another story called The Rebel Mission to Ord Mantell, and this was mentioned by Han Solo in Empire Strikes Back, and it's most currently the Bad Batch's base of operations in Season 2 of that animated show on Disney+. Plus. And the last two connections that I'm going to talk about related to D- Disney and Star Wars... Go right back to that very first movie that was released on May 25th, 1977. Some of the work that was done in that movie, some of the specifically the matte paintings, some of the matte paintings in that first movie were done by a gentleman named Harrison Ellenshaw. And I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with him, but he was actually a, a, a matte painter for the Disney company. And he had worked on such things as the Shaggy DA and Pete's Dragon. And if you want to get some more of the, the, the background of, of his work on A New Hope, you can watch the the ILM Industrial Lights and Magic uh, documentary that was recently shared with everybody on, on Disney+. And the last connection that I'm gonna talk about tonight was actually seen on screen in the sands of Tatooine. So we remember that famous scene with C-3PO walking through the sands and we see this, this pile of dinosaur bones, this, this spine and skull stretched throughout the sands and we're led to believe that is the, the remnants of a crate Dragon. Well, amusingly enough, those bones were actually from a totally different movie. They were from a movie called One of Our Dinosaurs is Missing. And that movie was a Disney movie from 1975. And if you don't believe me, you can check out Phil Stosak's Twitter feed. And Phil Stosak is a, a gentleman who's worked for, for Lucasfilm for, for quite a long time. So we've talked tonight about many, many connections between the Walt Disney Company and Star Wars, whether it's specific properties like Marvel and Indiana Jones, or individuals like Steve Jobs and Ed Catmull, or even Kirk Thatcher, who who have worked with uh, either Disney or Star Wars or or both at various times, and we could even c- connect. Star Wars to Walt Disney through George Lucas himself George Lucas was built was born in California in 1944 and was raised watching Disney Disney shows and in fact when Walt Disney when Walt Disney opened Disneyland in 1955 rumor has it that George and his family actually visited within the first week of opening so George has been connected to the Disney World company personally and professionally many times throughout the years you probably say well well, why does this even matter why did you spend so much time talking about these connections and I'll sum it up very simply in that I've often heard people say that Star Wars was better before Disney got involved and I'm here to say that Star Wars and Disney have been connected from the very beginning and there are lots of examples where Walt Disney Company and Star Wars overlapped. The makers of one worked on, on projects with the other, and they had very similar themes, they had very similar techniques, and all from the perspective of educating and entertaining. And so I believe that it's incorrect to say that Star Wars was better before Disney got involved, because I believe that Disney and Star Wars have been together, they've been been connected since the very, very beginning. And so I want to thank all of you for, for listening to this show. And I want to let you know that the next show that I put together will be a list of my favorite 40 things from Return of the Jedi. 2023 is the 40th anniversary. And as part of Star Wars Podcast Day, I'm going to be releasing a list of my 40 favorite things from Return of the Jedi, and I'm going to pepper it in with some other favorites that friends of the show have have shared with us through Facebook. So once again, thanks for joining me, and may the Force be with you. Always.